I thought they were going to keep going. There we go. All right. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for this opportunity to be in your house. We thank you for this chance to gather and once again hear from you as we open your word and we uh, seek your face in it. Father, I pray that you would be with us. Uh, I pray that you would open our, our hearts and our ears to receive what you would have for us from you today. Lord, thank you for each person that's present, uh, those both here in person and those who may be watching um, online. We, just, we thank you for each heart that's represented here tonight. Lord, bless us all um, for being here. Bless us with your, your presence. Uh, bless us with the power of your word. And we just thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, hopefully you got um, a handout. Hopefully, that, well, I was about to say there's some down here, but there's not any down here anymore. So uh, there may still be some uh, just right outside the door in the back here. If you don't have one, um, as always, I've left some, some blanks for you to fill in to make sure you stay awake the whole time. But uh, Pastor Mike is on vacation. And so I'm filling in for him this evening, so I'm glad to do it. We're going to be, if you will open up to Matthew, uh, to Matthew chapter 6, uh, we're going to be looking at a portion of the Sermon on the Mount. It's kind of what I've been doing the last few times. I've had an opportunity to fill in for Pastor Mike when he's not been here, uh, as I've just gone to, to passages from the Sermon on the Mount. I love the Sermon on the Mount, um, and a lot of good teachings from Jesus here um, and what we have from this. And so we're, we're diving into that again um, in this. And so we're going to be looking specifically at Matthew 6, 16 through 24. Matthew 6, 16 through 24. So uh, if you'll get your Bibles open, we'll be reading that in just a moment. But thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for joining us online for those who are there. And so uh, um, the Lord bless you for being here this evening. Uh, so I was going to jump in tonight. We're talking about treasuring God above all else. Treasuring God above all else, above all things. And that's a really broad topic, and there's a lot of things that we could talk about. And there's a lot of things the Bible has to say about what it means to treasure God. Um, and there's, uh, there's parables about it. There's uh, psalms about it. There's a lot of things that we could go to. But this passage speaks richly to us about what it means to truly seek God and desire God as a treasure above all. All things. And so if you have your Bibles open, I'm going to go ahead and we're going to read Matthew 6, 16 through 24. And we're going to dive in uh, to God's word this evening and uh, use what time we've got left. There's, a, there's a, a lot to cover here. So a few verses, but a lot to cover. So verse 16, Matthew 6, 16. This is Jesus speaking. And he says, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's a key verse tonight, it's 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body would be full of light. And if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And that's God's word tonight. I'm going to reach down here and make sure I've got my water. So as we look at this, 
this passage, this, um, it, it describes to us a few realities about what it means to treasure God. You know, I, growing up, I didn't have a lot of hobbies as a kid. Um, I was rather boring as a kid. I didn't get in a lot of trouble. Um, you know, I did things a lot of boys did, rode my bike in the neighborhood and um, had fun and played in the woods and all that kind of stuff, played ball. But um, as far as hobbies go, I did not have a lot of what you would call hobbies. Uh, but one of them that I did have was collecting sports memorabilia, and particularly I loved collecting baseball cards. And to my wife's chagrin, I still have um, those in my house. So they're still there. But I, I love collecting baseball cards, and really I love collecting anything related to the Tennessee Vols. I grew up 40 miles south of Knoxville, um, and so I love collecting anything related to the Tennessee Volunteers. And I had, I had no idea really what constituted a valuable card, sports card, or sports item back then, um, you know, but if it had to do with one of my favorite players, I would take that card and I would put that card in a plastic sleeve, you know, that would protect it and, um, you know, might be worth millions one day, I told myself, you know, could make some big bucks off of these cards one day. And so back during the, um, what's affectionately referred to for those of us that grew up in the 80s and 90s as the Peyton Manning era of Tennessee. I collected a Tennessee uh, TV guide back then that um, he and Philip Fulmer were on the cover of this TV guide. And I just knew that was going to be worth some money one day, so I kept that, um, which it may be. There's no, there is no such thing as TV guide anymore, is there? I have no idea. But anyway, it may be one day. And on the, the cover, uh, as well as there was a, a special Sports Illustrated edition when Tennessee won the national championship back in 1998, beat Florida State in the Fiesta Bowl. And I just knew this stuff would make me rich one day. I mean, I just knew. I just knew it would make me rich one day. And so if you'd asked me what I treasured back then, I probably would have said those cards and those magazines. Um, well, you know, I recently looked up a few of my more uh, valuable cards online. And guess what? I, I, think, I think my whole collection may be worth enough to get me a full tank of gas. Might be worth enough to get me a full tank of gas. So, you know, basically I'm set for life with this. So, um, so not, not quite. So I've grown older and I've learned to treasure more valuable things. And, and Jesus makes sure, you know, in this passage to help point our hearts in the right direction on what we should value as well. Now, of course, I was a kid. I didn't know what was valuable and what wasn't valuable. You know, I thought $10 was, you know, a full bank account. But we grow up and we learn more. And we look at what Jesus says here. And he's trying to point our hearts in the right direction of what we should value, of what we should treasure. And in this passage we're looking at tonight, he begins this discussion on treasuring God by focusing our attention on fasting. And one of my favorite books that I've ever read on the topic of fasting is um, a book, uh, it, it, well, it's not just about fasting. The, the book's concept is all about treasuring God, seeking God. Um, but the, the name of the book is A Hunger for God. It's a book by John Piper, A Hunger for God. And in it, he says, the birthplace of Christian fasting is homesickness for God. I'll say that again because it's really kind of the springboard for what we're going into tonight. The birthplace of Christian fasting is homesickness for God. So I could have very easily have entitled this message, A Hunger for God, because that's what Jesus is speaking about here too. And that's what fasting is. And that's what laying your treasures in heaven is. It's desiring him more than anything. But I'll say more on fasting here in just a moment. But this message goes beyond fasting, though. And what I believe that Jesus addresses in this passage is that a human heart is not satisfied 
until it treasures God above all things. A human heart is not satisfied until it treasures God above all things. So a heart whose affection is set on God, who delights in the glory of God, and who seeks Him and Him alone above all earthly treasure, only that heart can be truly satisfied. And so, and find true satisfaction. So only He, only God can meet our greatest needs and fulfill our greatest longings. And so, Jesus is clear in this passage, food can't fill that, earthly fame can't fill it, riches can't fill it, and nothing short of undivided devotion to God will fill our greatest longings and meet our deepest needs. So Jesus is really getting to the heart of the message here, of his message on the Sermon on the Mount, because this this passage is kind of located, it's kind of tucked almost right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. It's almost like it's the, it's almost like this is what Jesus was building up to here um, in in this passage. So it's right at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. And um, he's talking to us about treasuring God above all things. And that's what the human heart was made for. So let's dive into what specifically Jesus says about this. So point number one on your sheet, point number one on your sheet, treasuring God by fasting. That's your first blank, treasuring God by fasting. So a, a very simple definition of fasting. Now, we, we, there's not been a lot of talk about fasting in the church today. You don't hear a lot of, uh, there's not a lot of sermons about it, not a lot of Sunday school lessons about fasting, not a lot of uh, Bible studies wrote or devoted specifically to the topic of fasting or um, books on the specific topic of fasting. Most of us probably have gone this week and have not, unless you've had some medical test or something, have not fasted. This week, I certainly did not today. I ate a Luke's hamburger, so I definitely did not practice what I'm talking about here tonight. Um, but this is something that we, we, we don't talk about a lot is the topic of fasting. So fasting by simple definition, this is your second blank, by the way, under the point under there. Fasting is the occasional abstinence, abstinence from food for a period of time. It's the occasional abstinence from food for a period of time. So whether for a few hours or a few days, it's a time when we neglect temporarily something our body needs for the sake of the soul. It's something that we temporarily neglect something our body needs for the sake of our soul. So it's a practice that's it's frequently mentioned in the Bible a lot. And it was often done in conjunction with repentance, with mourning, or with a time of devoted prayer or national crisis, whatever the case may be. You know, David fasted when his child was sick. Daniel fasted when he faced persecution. Esther called for the people of Israel to fast when they were faced with um, extinction, basically, in Persia. Paul and Barnabas fasted before appointing elders. Jesus fasted for 40 days during his wilderness temptations before he began what is most of his public ministry. And so while fasting is a common practice for various reasons in the Bible, it's an oft-neglected discipline in our own Lives and in the church today. So for most of us, the only time when we fast is basically when the doctor tells us to because you've got some type of test coming up, whether it's a blood test or a physical. Uh, Some people fast as part of a diet. You know, there's a diet called intermittent fasting where you only eat at certain parts of the day instead of all day like like I do. Um, So, but when you do fast, you know, often it's for medical or nutritional reasons. Um, We often don't fast for spiritual ones. We don't fast for spiritual reasons. And so given that the Bible doesn't give us a lot of instruction on about when or how often we should do this, 
or how, for how long a fast should last, it is clear that there are occasions where we should fast. And Jesus expects that his people, his followers, would do this. Um, and so um, it's, it's a time of forsaking something, that, again, that we physically need or desire in order to, quote, unquote, feast on God. It's a time of forsaking something that we need physically in order to feast on something that we need desperately spiritually. So it's a time of self-denial in order to pursue Christ. It's a time of forsaking earthly treasure in order to spend some specific time treasuring God. And it's a time of forsaking something good, which food is, for something greater. So sometimes the things that we're called to fast from or to give up are not necessarily bad things. They're good things. But Jesus is calling for us to lay them down for a period of time so that we may soak and pray over and seek something greater. We lay aside the good gifts that God has given us, like food, and seek Him. After all, He's the one that we should be praising and worshiping, not the things that He has made or given us. So, all this to say, that's what fasting is. And there's actually a handout. If you're like me, I kind of went searching for the topic today, and I, I come across this article on Desiring God website, which that's a great website to go to if you're looking. They have a vast number of articles and podcasts on a number of subjects, but... This is a guide on fasting for beginners, so I'm not going to read this or go over this. I just wanted to kind of leave you with something. If you were questioning about how in the world do I do this, how do I start, I've never done it before, what in the world does this look like, well, maybe this article can point you in the right direction. So I just wanted to leave you with some specific information on how to begin fasting um, and maybe include it in your regular spiritual disciplines. Maybe God will do something in your life. Maybe he's calling some of you to, to make this a regular part of what you do in devotion to him. So... While we don't have a lot of instruction on the winds and the hows of fasting, what we do get clear instruction from Jesus on in this passage is how not to fast. How not to fast. Jesus assumed that fasting was a good thing and that his disciples would do it. Um, and what Jesus addresses in this um, is this innate sinful desire in the hearts of people to do things for the praise of man. Uh, he did the same thing with prayer. If you look at chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, and then again at verses 5 and 6, he, he addresses the same concept when, when about, about prayer, about doing things for the praise of man. So what Jesus addresses is this desire in our heart to do things so that man may look at us and say, He's, he or she is amazing. Look at their devotion. He says that we ought not to fast as, hypocrite, as hypocrites. So what, why, how, do, how do hypocrites fast? Well, Jesus lists two things specifically here, two things about fasting that they do. They change their outward disposition, and they do it for public display. So they change their outward disposition, and they do it for public display. So Jesus says they look gloomy, or they put on gloomy faces. Some of your translations may have different words there, but what they do is they disfigure themselves. <clears throat> the idea of a gloomy face is one that has a sad countenance to it, or it's a mournful disposition. And Jesus, he used this, Jesus, oddly enough, this Greek word that we translate here as gloomy or sad or mournful, Jesus used that same Greek word to describe how the disciples on the road to Emmaus, you remember after Jesus was crucified and he was risen again and he encountered these two disciples on the road to Emmaus and they were mourning and kind of confused as to what had happened that whole weekend. And Jesus is like, hey guys, what's up? Um, what's going on? Tell me what's, what's happened. Um, he used that same word to describe their countenance um, on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. So <clears throat> the hypocrites make sure that they put on an outward appearance 
of gloominess. So they're not really mournful. They just have an appearance of being mournful or gloomy. And Jesus says the reason they do that so that people will know that they're fasting. It was their way of drawing attention to themselves. They would look sad. They would not shave. They would not wash their face. Uh, and they did this to receive the praise of man. According, and according to Jesus, that, that was the only reward that they would get. They sought temporary pleasure of men rather than the eternal pleasure and the satisfaction of God. So Jesus says that that's not how we should do this. We should not do it for the praise of man. We should not disfigure our outward appearance and do it to please people. So Jesus, what does he say? Jesus says that we ought to act normal when we fast. Now, acting normal may be hard for some of you, but that's what Jesus calls for us to do when we fast. We act normal. If you're a man, this means you groom your, your beard or you shave your face and comb your hair, you, you wash, you freshen up. If, if you're a woman, well, you do whatever it is that you all do to get ready in the morning. Um, you know, you, it's, it's a normal, follow your normal routine. So the point being is that you don't draw attention to yourself. You know, John, John Piper puts it this way in, in the book that I've quoted already. He says, do you want God to be glorified or do you want to be admired? Do you want God to be glorified or do you want to be admired? And that's a good question for us to ask ourselves. So don't draw attention to yourself. Jesus promises that if we make God our treasure during fasting and seeking him only, that not, not only will God see you in that moment, he will see you in that moment of weakness, but he will sustain you by rewarding you with his presence. Because after all, that's what fasting is all about. It's about drawing close to him. It's about feasting on him and being satisfied by him and his presence. So the reward of fasting is God himself. So when we treasure him above all things and we demonstrate this by fasting from the things of this world, then he meets us where we are and he rewards us with himself. So the ultimate treasure is God himself. So, you know, sometimes for the sake of our own soul, fast. Wash your face, wash your hair, let God observe your secret longing for him, let him see how hungry you are for him, and he will reward you. And after all, the gaze of God should be the most important gaze that we seek, not, not the gaze of man or the eyes of man, but his gaze, his approval, his seeing us and delighting in us and drawing near to us through that act of fasting. And that's what it all is. There's a lot more to fasting, and there's a lot more the Bible has to say about it, but at the end of the day, that's what fasting is, treasuring God by fasting. So that's point number one. So what else does Jesus say about treasuring God? Well, the second thing he says is we treasure God by forsaking earthly riches. We treasure God by forsaking earthly riches. This is in verses 19 through 21. So in addition to the temporary self-denial of fasting, we see Jesus calling for his followers to forsake Storing up treasures on this earth. So forsaking the things of this world, forsaking treasures in this world, and clinging to the treasures of the next life, of, of the new heavens. So we all have things that we would consider valuable. I've shared with you some of mine. Some of those things are tangible material possessions, like heirlooms that may be handed down from family members that you cherish and love, antiques. Um, classic cars, and some of those things are intangible. Some of the things that we treasure are intangible things. There are things like family or precious memories that we have of growing up, um, people who've gone on to be with the Lord, things you can't really put a price tag on. And those things, you know, some of those things are, they are valuable. You know, it, it's, 
it's not that possessing things valuable in and of themselves is sinful. Jesus doesn't, that's not what he's drawing us towards here. It's letting the pursuit of those things take the place of your pursuit of God that Jesus is warning against here. He also knows our hearts, and so he knows how drawn away we can be in our pursuit of wealth and our pursuit of things, of the treasures of this earth. So those, those who have it can't get enough, and those who don't think it will solve all their problems if they just had enough. And so what the Lord is warning us against here is worldliness, worldliness. Uh, a famous theologian by the name of J.C. Ryle says that worldliness is one of the greatest dangers beset man's soul. Worldliness is one of the greatest dangers that besets man's soul. Another commentator says, says that the phrase, do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, he says it's a present imperative. And this means that it's a command for constant daily vigilance to be on guard against your soul, finding pleasures in the things of this world rather than pleasure in God. Because that's what we're tempted to do every day. So for this reason, uh, this is simple according to Jesus, the things of, you know, why, why, why do we, why is there a warning against these things? Why is Jesus telling our, our hearts to be on guard against putting our affections and putting our treasures in the things of this world and setting our hearts on the things of this world? Well, it's easy, according to Jesus, <clears throat> It's because the things of this earth don't last. They rust, they decay, they can be taken away from us by life circumstances or by people with evil intent who steal them. The point is, is why would we invest in temporary things? Why would we invest in temporary things while we're forsaking an eternal reward? To Jesus, that doesn't make sense. And to the disciple of Jesus, that shouldn't make sense either. Everything in this world has an expiration date. Everything in this world has an expiration date, which includes you and I, by the way. We're not made to live on this earth forever. We are made to live forever somewhere, but we're not made to dwell on this earth forever. <clears throat> so everything in the world has an expiration date. Money inflates, as we're all see here now. So when what is saved up today isn't worth as much tomorrow, houses fall into disrepair, Cars break down over time, and I'm not getting into the Ford versus Chevy debate here, but cars break down over time. Um, clothing and shoes must be constantly replaced. Many people invest a lot of resources in their physical bodies, right? They forsake time with God, and they invest it in the gym. Not that working out's a bad thing, but working out at the expense of your soul is, is a bad thing. Um, we feed our bodies the right things sometimes, only to neglect the spiritual nutrition that our souls need. We, we forsake the reading of God's Word. We forsake time with Him. Not that we, we should take care of ourselves. God needs us to be as healthy as we can be if we're going to be useful to the kingdom. We should take care of ourselves, but not at the expense of our souls. So Jesus commands us to lay up treasure in heaven. Why? Because it's a place where rust can't destroy, because nothing there is destructible, right? Nothing there is destructible. Whatever you store up there, it'll still be there, and it'll be there forever. It's a place where moths can't destroy because nature isn't at war against humanity there. It doesn't war against the, you know, nature is at war with us here on this earth, right? It's, it's trying everything that things fall apart, they decay, nature takes over, right? And things, things get ruined, but heaven's a place where that doesn't happen. Nature is not at war with humanity there anymore. It's a place where thieves can't break in and steal because sin doesn't exist. There's nothing to steal. There's no evil plots to take away things there. And Luke chapter 12, uh, 16 through 21 really provides a great commentary on this subject of what it means to store up <clears throat> our treasures in heaven. Um, 
And if you, if you look at that passage, if you turn there real quick, just to give some context here. So Luke 12, uh, specifically verses 16 through 21 This is the parable of the the rich fool that Jesus is talking about here. And um, so this is where Jesus, he's telling them a parable, um, uh, starting in verse, well, well, I said 16 through 21, but let's start in verse 13. It says, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Come to Jesus to solve this debate between him and his brother. Evidently, it wasn't a fair split. So he says, Jesus, somebody came to him and said, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said, man, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? And he said to them, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. In other words, we shouldn't be defined by the things we have. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I will build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And I think a valuable lesson that we learn from that <clears throat> is if we're going to store up treasures here and we're going to convince ourselves that that's what's going to make us comfortable, God could very easily do to us what he does to this man and says, today your soul is required of you. Who's going to use all this stuff now? Where is all this stuff going to go now? The things that you have prepared, whose will they become so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. It's an amazing truth that Jesus is trying to get us to focus on here that he is the thing that we should treasure above all things. You know, heaven is where Jesus is. Why does, why does he tell us to store our treasures in heaven? Well, that's where he is. Heaven, is. heaven isn't heaven without Jesus. So to lay up treasures in heaven means that we value and we treasure him above all things. We treasure presence with him above all things. He is the treasure of heaven. And so I love the way that one author put it. He said that one of the basic fundamental truths of the Christian faith is that our heart, who we really are on the inside, should belong to God. He created us. He has redeemed us in Christ, purchasing us by the precious blood of his son to love anyone or anything or to treasure anyone or anything more than Jesus is spiritual adultery. It's adultery of the heart. And this is also summed up one of this idea of treasuring Jesus, this idea of focusing on him, because it really is adultery of the heart. It's spiritual adultery. To, to, to put your trust in something other than Jesus is to commit your life to something other than him. The Bible defines that as idolatry. When we turn our affection from God towards something else, anything else, anyone else, That's spiritual adultery. That's idolatry. We've created a God in our own heart to worship, and we've forsaken God. So what else does Jesus say about treasuring him? Well, there's another parable, Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. I won't quote that one to you, but this is where Jesus tells the story of the hidden treasure buried in a field. You you all remember the story, right? The man was so elated 
that at what he had found in this field that he sold everything, all that he'd had in order to buy the field. And Jesus says, the kingdom is like that field, right? And Jesus is the treasure. The kingdom is like the field and Jesus is the treasure. So how do we store up treasure in heaven? How do we do this? What's, what does this practically look like? Well, we love Jesus above all else. And how do we do that? Well, if Jesus says, Jesus says that if you love him, you'll do what he says. Everything done to the glory of God and God alone on this earth is storing up treasure in heaven. So there's, there's any number of things it could be, but anything and everything done to the glory of God and God alone on this earth is storing up treasure in heaven. Everything done that puts the spotlight on Jesus is storing up treasure in heaven. Every simple act of praise and adoration towards Jesus is storing up treasure in heaven. It's not that doing these things earns our right to enter heaven. I hope we understand that. It's not that doing these things earns our right to be there. That could never happen. That was purchased by the blood of Jesus. But every one of these God-glorifying thoughts and acts demonstrates where our heart actually is. Right? Because we must find, we must ask ourselves daily a few simple questions. Which is the question Jesus gets at to here in verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. In other words, your heart follows what you treasure. You love what you treasure. So we have to ask ourselves a few simple daily questions. Where, where, where are our hearts at? What do I love best? Are the things that I love most in the earth or the things that I love most in heaven? Where am I devoting most of my time? There's a good question to ask ourselves. How do you know what you love? How do you know where you're storing up your treasures? Well, where are you devoting most of your time towards? What am I devoting most of my resources towards? What are you giving your money to? What are you giving your time to, your attention to? What is God calling me? And this is a, this is a difficult question, but we have to ask ourselves this one too. What is God calling me to forsake so that I might love him more? What is God calling for me to give up? And it doesn't necessarily mean that thing is a sinful thing in and of itself, but some of us get wrapped up in the good things that God has given us. We get so wrapped up in them that we think that they're the best thing that we can have, right? So sometimes God is, what is he telling us to give up in order that we might love him more? Is he the treasure of your heart? Is he the, the one that you're storing your treasures in? Because that's what it means when it says about storing your treasures in heaven. That's where he is so to store your treasures in heaven, you're storing them in the place where he is at and you're trusting him. That at the end of the day, these aren't things you can see, right? We can't put our hands on these treasures now. We don't necessarily know exactly what they may be, but we know, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that, they're, that he will be there. And if we get nothing else but Jesus when you get to heaven, you get him. And that, that's treasure enough, right? That's treasure enough. So where are our hearts at? Are we doing what Jesus tells us to do here by storing up things, treasures in heaven and not on earth? Because he will burn this place up one day. He says that he's going to do that. It will not last forever. Anything that you've stored here will go with the earth, but anything that you've stored in heaven will last forever. So the final thought here tonight, the final thought, which by the way, point number three, under point number two, the third bullet point under number two, the blank was heart. Where your treasure is, your heart will follow. <clears throat> so third point, we treasure God by devotion to him alone. We treasure God, treasuring God by devotion to him alone. And this is where Jesus really makes a very blunt statement in these verses, verses 22 through 24. 
in this passage, Jesus is using the analogy of light and darkness and how a healthy eye versus an unhealthy one processes light. So I see Marcus over there, Mr. you're an eye doctor, buddy. I'm probably going to butcher this analogy, so you can correct me later, but I'm going I'm to go for it anyway, okay? So he talks, he uses this theme. He's talking about light versus darkness, and light versus darkness are often themes found in Scripture, right? They're, they're very prominent in John's writing in the New Testament especially. You get a lot of it in John and, and in the letter of 1 John. Light represents good or God, and darkness represents evil. And so Jesus says that the eye is the lamp of the body. And so this means that the eye is the organ by which light is processed by, which leads to our sight. So if our eye is healthy, then the whole body, quote unquote, is full of light or is able to process correctly and fully the light that it perceives and grants us a clear image of what is there. So if your eye is bad, it's unable to process light fully. Therefore, you're left in the dark at worst or at best with a blurry image of what is in front of you. Point being, you don't see clearly what's there. So what is being said here regarding our hearts or our spiritual conditions in verses 22 and 23? Well, I think it's this. <clears throat> if we focus the eyes of our hearts on the light that is God and all that he is, then we will not be distracted or misguided by the things of the world. We will not be distracted or misguided by the things of the world. So we will not let darkness in and our spiritual eyesight will remain good. And only by having our eyes fixed on him as our supreme treasure can we truly walk in this world as we ought, seeing things spiritually clear as he desires for us to see them. We cannot be divided in our attention. If we focus our eyes on the world, then our vision is darkened against the light. And we walk in darkness and we will stumble and we will fall as one who has blurred or impaired vision. So Jesus makes this point pretty, pretty bluntly in verse 24. You know, he says, no one, no one can serve two masters. That's your final blank on your sheet, by the way. Man wasn't made to serve two masters. We can't. We can't do it. Our devotion to the world is like walking in darkness. And Jesus says split devotion trying to focus our eyes on the world and on God at the same time, split devotion robs God of the glory that only he deserves. So devotion to him and him alone or fixing our eyes on him <clears throat> is the only way to walk in the light. So Jesus makes this point even more clear by saying you will either love one and hate the other, right? If you can't have two masters, you're going to love one, you're going to hate the other, or you'll devote yourself completely to one and you'll despise the other. So it could lead to spite, right? Towards God, devoting ourselves to the world could lead to spite towards God. Loving the world leads towards hatred of God. And Jesus makes it clear that this is a battle for our hearts, right? Material, it's the material possessions of the world or Jesus. That, that's what's pulling at us. It's the material possessions, the things of this world that will pass away one day. It's that. Does that have our affection? Is that what our eyes are drawn to? Is that what we're looking at? Is that what we treasure? Or is it Jesus? There's two clear options before us today. As people who claim to be followers of Jesus, you've got two options. You look at the world and you lose sight of Jesus, or you look at Jesus and you get sight of everything. That's the two options. So we can't serve Christ and the world at the same time. It can't be done. God, God will not share his glory. And he will not see the devotion of his people split between the world. I firmly believe that if God, 
if, you're, if you belong to God and he sees your devotion being towards something else other than him, if he sees you wrestling in your heart and something overtaking you that's going to draw your attention away from him, God has a way of getting the attention of his people, bringing us to our knees, drawing our face back to him so that we might see more clearly. God will not share devotion in the heart of his people. And there's a story, I think, in the Old Testament that illustrates this incredibly well. It's 1 Samuel 5 and, uh, 5 and 6, I believe. And I won't, I won't read the whole passage to you because it's a very lengthy story. So I'll do a sum up here in the few minutes that we got left. Here's the sum up. So Israel was at war with the Philistines. This is a shocker. Pretty much the whole of the Old Testament is Israel at war with the Philistines. So they're at war with the Philistines. Eli was the priest at this time, right? Samuel was the prophet. He was the final judge. Eli is the priest. Uh, and he had two wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas, right? So they allowed the armies of Israel in this war against the Philistines. They saw that they were being defeated. They weren't making any headway. So Hophni and Phinehas and their, their brilliant evil minds, they decided, hey, you know what we're going to do? We're going to march into battle with the Ark of the Covenant. We're just going to go take the Ark right out of the temple. I know God didn't tell us to do that, but we're just going to go take it kind of as our personal own little good luck charm, and we're going to march into battle against the Philistines. Well, God obviously did not honor that that rash decision. So not only did the Israelites lose the battle, but the Philistines captured the ark. And Israel was devastated because we know what the ark represented to the people of Israel, right? It represented the presence of God. It represented his promise to be with them, to dwell with them, to tabernacle with them. And now this ark, his seat, the throne of the presence of God in the temple was gone and it was in the hands of their enemies. It was devastating for them. Well, the Philistines took the ark and they placed it in the temple of their god, Dagon. This is one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. So it places it in the temple of their god, Dagon. And so the next morning, of course, there's a statue of the god Dagon in the temple of Dagon. Because he's not a real god. He's just a statue that man made. So the next morning, the statue of Dagon is, of course, fallen face down, laying on the ground in front of the ark. So the Philistines, instead of saying, hmm, that's, that's interesting... Maybe we shouldn't have this ark. No, nope, they just pick the statue back up, set it back up, and go about their day. And the next day, they come back. Not only had the statue of Dagon fallen down again, but now its hands and its head were completely severed from the rest of the statue, lying cut off on the threshold of the temple. And of course, they, you know, they wig out at that point and it's like, well, maybe we shouldn't have this. And so they take it and they give it to somebody else so they can be cursed. Right, So, here's the point. Here's the point. When God is paired with idols, money or anything else in this world that would try to take his place, when God is paired with idols, they fall before him. They fall before him. He will not share space or his glory with another. He will not share space in our hearts with an idol. He will not share his glory with an idol. And this is true in our hearts. If you really, that's a physical demonstration, I believe, of what God does in our own hearts, right? If you belong to him, he will not share space in your heart with any idol that you have made out of the things in this world. They will fall before him. God must be king in our hearts alone. God must be king. He must be treasured above all things. And when the eyes of our hearts are fixed on him, everything else falls into place. And everything else is put in its proper perspective because God deserves the full devotion of his people. That's what he's after. All the whole time, all the stuff that he did to Israel throughout the Old Testament, all the nations that he allowed to come in and attack and defeat them, 
all of it was for the sake so they would look at him, right? So they would treasure him above all things. They would forget about having prominence in this world and riches in this world and all this stuff. And they would say, we have God. What else do we need? And, and God has not changed his tune. It's the same thing with us today in our own hearts. God will not have idols in our hearts that we may betray our worship to him and forsake our worship to him and turn towards something else. If you belong to him, he will not share space in your heart or with mine with idols. So God is to be master and he is to be our treasure over everything else. So here's, here's a few thoughts to take in closing. So first thought, consider fasting and how it may fit into your regular disciplines. As the Lord leads you, enter into times of fasting. Do so cheerfully and in a way that doesn't draw attention to yourself. <clears throat> it could be for a life circumstance. Maybe you've got a big decision ahead of you and you want to fast. Maybe God's telling you to make it a part of your regular devotion. Maybe you're mourning over something. Maybe you need to repent of something and you need to enter into a time of fasting to, uh, to repent of whatever may be in your life. Whatever it is, <clears throat> God says that his people should do it and do it cheerfully and in a way that doesn't draw attention to ourselves. So this helps reorient our heart towards God and it reminds us that we need him more than anything else. So consider fasting. Secondly, let us pray for a spirit that treasures him above all else. And in doing that, let us begin laying treasures up in heaven where he is. And let's be on guard against worldliness. And then thirdly and simply, let's devote ourselves wholly to him and to him alone. So I'm going to close with a quote from theologian J.C. Ryle. I've quoted him already, but... We'll close with a quote from him, which I found fitting. Here's what he says. This is a, a commentary that he wrote on the Gospel of Matthew. He says, there are, thousands, there are thousands in our churches uncomfortable, ill at ease, and dissatisfied with themselves, and they hardly know why. Well, the reason is revealed here in this passage. They're trying to keep in with both sides. They're endeavoring to please God and to please man, to serve Christ and to serve the world at the same time. Let us not commit this mistake. Let us be decided, thoroughgoing, uncompromising followers of Christ. Let our motto be that of Paul in Philippians 3, 13 and 14, where he says, Be but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Then we shall be happy Christians. We shall feel the sun shining on our faces. Heart, head, and conscience will all be full of light. Be decided for Christ, and your whole body will be full of light. So Christian, treasure him above all else, because where your treasure is, Jesus says, there's where your heart is going to be also. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for all that you do for us. We thank you for this reminder of your word, this, this hard truth. I pray would settle into our hearts that we need you more than anything, that we should treasure you more than anything. All the good things you give us in this life are, are great, and we thank you for them, but none of them should ever take your place. And so we praise you for who you are. Please guard our hearts against this type of worldliness. Guard our hearts against the treasures of this world. Guard our hearts against the draw of the material things of this world and set our eyes on you. And we see that you're all that we need. And we just praise you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.